This Earth Day, we speak to oceanographer Dr. Sylvia O, oh, who is also affectionately known as Her Deepness. Sylvia has spent her life advocating for the oceans and articulating its link to climate change and planetary health. Sylvia, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's an absolute honour to be in doing this interview with you. Um, my name is Jessica. I'm the founder of EcoBusiness. EcoBusiness is the largest sustainability media platform here in Singapore. I wanted to start this interview by asking you about your views on ocean and climate change. I think people don't immediately think about the oceans when they think about the health of the planet, but perhaps we can hear from you why that is so important. Well, we should think of the ocean when we think of climate. After all, the ocean really dominates Earth as the principal system that governs climate, shapes planetary temperature, chemistry, home for most of life on Earth. Because we are terrestrial, we sometimes forget that that's so. But if you look at that view of Earth from space, it's pretty clear, it's obvious. This is an ocean planet. No ocean, no life. No ocean, there is no climate. There is a climate crisis. But there's also an ocean crisis. We have seen just in my lifetime, the collapse of the great ocean food webs. <laughs> We've taken so much out of the ocean. and We put so many terrible things into the ocean that the ocean is in real trouble. That means that what we do to the ocean affects everything, including the climate, and certainly it affects us. Thank you so much, Sylvia. I think that, you know, making that connection between oceans and climate change is so important. Right now, you know, we've had the COP26 meeting and there's also been this huge conversation around the race to net zero and getting to zero carbon emissions. How do the oceans play a role in contributing to that race? Well, you know, it seems obvious, given what we now know about how the planet functions. We have learned so much just in the last 50 years or so, but concerns about climate or understanding the climate really has been governed largely by those who are physical scientists. Weather phenomenon, looking at the atmosphere, it, it, it is obvious now that the atmosphere is an ocean of air and the ocean is an atmosphere of water and they are totally connected. Where does water come from that's in the atmosphere? It's generated by the ocean. 97% of Earth's water is ocean. So, what governs climate? It's a combination of planetary chemistry and temperature, and both are dominated by the ocean. So, it, it should be obvious, and now it's increasingly clear to those who study climate that it's necessary if you are to understand the atmosphere, you must understand the ocean and how it all connects. I, we, we now can see what we couldn't see in the past. So as never before, we have an opportunity to look at the whole system. We have evidence. We have weather stations on the land. Now we have the equivalent in the ocean. We need more. But 
measurements of how the ocean currents flow and how that influences the temperature and the flow of, of, of the atmosphere above. So carbon is a key. We know that what we've been putting into the atmosphere through burning coal, oil, gas, fossil fuels, increasing the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we look to the processes that have been taking place through all of human history, the carbon cycle, the carbon dioxide cycle, the capture of carbon dioxide by forests, and now putting on the balance sheet those miniature forests of life in the sea, phytoplankton, that like the forests on the land, capture carbon dioxide, generate oxygen, produce food. When they capture CO2 with water, photosynthesis drives the great ocean food webs and the food webs on the land as well, and both generate oxygen. But it's that carbon capture that causes the flow of carbon, whether it's in trees, in the soil, or in the flow of life in the ocean. We understand about carbon credits to capture hold carbon and that this is one way to measure an impact relative to climate. Save the trees, plant trees, but we need to save the ocean, the blue carbon, not just the green carbon on the land, but the blue carbon that is contained in phytoplankton, zooplankton, fish, whales, mangroves, seagrasses, kelp forests, coral reefs. You know, it's a living planet. This is not just rocks and water. So to understand climate, you have to understand the carbon cycle, the living cycle of life. Protecting trees obviously matters. Protecting the ecosystems in the ocean, the fish, keeping the fish in the ocean helps resolve the climate crisis. To understand what each of us individually and collectively can do to go from decline to recovery is to understand how we have gotten to where we are. What have we done to disrupt the ocean? What have we done to disrupt the natural systems on the land? Much of the damage, much of the harm has happened during my lifetime. Our numbers have increased, but more than just our numbers, our technology that makes it possible to clear-cut forests and to clear-cut the ocean of life. The ability to find and capture and market ocean wildlife is unprecedented. Before the 1950s, the, the amount that we could extract from the ocean was relatively low, but we have scaled up to the point now where what we're taking is simply not sustainable. So we need to think about the choices we make. Wild animals taken from the sea, it's not sustainable. We can take some, but not at the level that we are now taking. And the process is so destructive the clear-cutting of forests mean you bulldoze the forest, you take it all. We're clear-cutting fish and clear-cutting systems by using trawls that are like bulldozers that scrape the ocean floor 
you take what we want and you throw much of the life back into the ocean. Those dead animals release carbon and methane back to the atmosphere and they disrupt the systems that capture and hold carbon. Mm -hmm. You know, a study was done recently by the International Monetary Fund. It was reported at the World Economic Forum in 2020 in Davos that whales, the living whales, the value of carbon in the whales is worth more than a trillion dollars mm -hmm. in carbon units, carbon credits. Every whale has a value and together think about the just the monetary value, the carbon value. So if it works for whales, it works for tuna, it works for lobsters, it works for shrimp, it works for all the fish, all the life in the ocean. Each one has a carbon value in the ocean when we take it out of the ocean and we as consumers, we're driving the market. Is it because we have to eat life from the ocean or is it a choice? For most of us, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. We have plenty of options about what to eat. And now we know that agriculture also has a big carbon cost. Mm -hmm. Eating low on the food chain, more plants, less meat, less fish. That's what individuals can do. And we need to understand that protecting the, the, the carbon in the ocean, the, the coral reefs, protecting the seagrass meadows, protecting the mangroves, restoring the systems that have been damaged. Mostly in my lifetime, I've been a witness to the decline. I want to be, I, I so very much want to be a witness to the turning before we get to the collapse of the rest of the systems that hold the planet steady. We have the power. Knowledge is power. We can do this. And I think that's very poignant that you said you want to witness that turning point. I mean, just last week, we've seen the IPCC report being published and scientists basically say we can no longer ignore the climate crisis. And then they've identified, you know, five areas, renewable energy, nature-based solutions. What was your view of this latest IPCC report that has come out? Well, we need to do everything we can to realize that never before could we know what is now known, never again will we have a better chance to avoid the tipping points. We're like this, let's reach that turning point through the individual choices we make, protect nature, land and ocean, as if our lives depend on it, because now we know if we don't protect nature, we won't have a future that works for us. I find it amazing that you know you are 86 and still advocating you know tirelessly for the oceans and climate. So tell me a little bit about why you're in Singapore and also what do you think Asia as a region can play uh, in this climate change journey? Where in the world is Asia? Look at the Pacific Ocean. It's the blue face of the planet. The actions taken here have a magnified impact the choices about food, agriculture on the land, and certainly what is taken from the ocean. We need to understand that the living ocean 
keeping, keeping fish in the sea has a high value, greater than what the value of taking fish out of the sea actually, in the short term, it has a value, but what damage that we're inflicting on the, the, the natural ocean by taking so much so fast, we need to seriously consider making other choices about how to feed ourselves. And, and I don't have to tell you or anyone, the knowledge is there. All you have to do is really look at the evidence and think about, hmm, plants are really delicious. Let's think about encouraging more plants in our diet. And we, we've, we've gone in the wrong direction, really, by adding animals, animals, animals to our diet. And that can't work in the long pool with 8 billion people, and it's not really good for us either. So understand that, look at the evidence, and, and think about individually and together, where can we invest in better food choices that are healthier for us and certainly healthier for the planet. You're in Singapore here to launch an exhibition and also, you know, there's going to be this Antarctic expedition that you're going to be undertaking next year. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's all about knowing. If you don't know, you can't care. <laughs> and you, you might know and not care, but this exhibition about understanding the ocean, why it matters, what you can do, what we can do together. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And I think there are answers here. If people say, what can I do? Look around, look in the mirror, say, what am I good at? What do I care about? What, what power do I have? Again, no one can do it all, but individuals, companies, communities, countries, together, we, as humans, with our big brains, <laughs> can look and see, well, we're heading in the wrong direction. Because if we continue to do what we're now doing, things that seem like a good idea when we started might have to be re-evaluated now that we know we've got clear evidence. We must protect nature. We must give back. We've taken from the ocean, we've taken from the land. We did not know that it mattered what we put into the atmosphere. We used to think the ocean was the best place to dispose of things we don't want close to where we live. But now we're paying the price. And is it too late to change? Well, no, we've been changing through all of our history. I mean, we're eating things today that as a child no one, not my family, not my community, no one in my country or in the world consumed creatures taken from the deep sea because no one could do it then. So we changed, we started to consume them. Now we have to change and stop consuming them. There's no reason why anyone should be taking krill, these little shrimpy things from Antarctica. When I was a child, no one could even get to Antarctica let alone extract the wild animals there on a commercial scale. No people ever lived 
in all of the history of, of humankind or took animals from Antarctica until fairly recent years. So we changed. Now we have to change again to protect them, not exploit them. It's killing the ocean, hurting the climate. Now we can see it. We can make changes that we need to make. <laughs> of course, for the creatures who live in these distant places, but it's really for us in the end. We need to have a planet that's friendly to us. Right now, it's getting increasingly less friendly because of what we're doing. I can totally relate to that. I actually went on an expedition to the Antarctic in 2018 with Sir Robert Swan. And just even being there made me very conscious of my own footprint, you know, right. and how much we have, we have to do to protect the, the ecosystems that, right. you know, we are blessed with. Um, I suppose just, you know, going towards the end of the interview, I have just two last questions left. But the first one would be, um, what are your future, uh, what is your future vision? What are some of the projects that really excite you um, right now? Well, the future, you know, we should all think, what is the future we want? We want a peaceful world. We want to make peace with nature. We've been almost, it would seem, waging war on nature, destroying the systems that have taken not just hundreds or thousands or even millions, but billions of years invested in shaping the planet in ways that favor our existence. It's taken us mostly actions that I have witnessed decades to significantly damage those very systems. So, you know, what can we do? What is the world we want? What is the world I want? I'd like to see healthy coral reefs. I'd love to see healthy forests. I love to see healthy people understanding that we need to work with the natural world, find an enduring safe place for ourselves. But we can't do it just by continuing to kill and take and cut the forests and consume life in the ocean. We need to find where we can strike a balance. We've always aspired to do that but never before have we had the knowledge that now exists so that we can make that possible. We talk about sustainability. Well, that's the goal, so that we have a healthy natural system. Some say, and I believe it's a good start, to take at least 30% of the land, 30% of the ocean by 2030, and secure safeguard these natural systems. We need to look at the whole world, though, and safeguard ourselves within the natural systems. 30% is not enough, but it's a great start to get to that place where we can restore the systems that capture the carbon, generate the oxygen, cleanse the water. But nature needs us now to restore what we have taken. And it is possible, armed with knowledge, but we have to hurry. 
I think on that last note, uh, you spoke very strongly earlier about trawlers, you know, taking from the oceans and maybe just very briefly, you know, what are your views on deep sea mining? This is an issue that is very undercovered and EcoBusiness has done explainers for it and would love to hear your perspective on that. You know, it's baffling to me why we would even consider damaging, really, like trawling, like bulldozing, to take these ancient systems, hundreds of millions of years, to form these living rocks. They're not just as some would have, if you believe, just minerals that are out there waiting to be extracted with little damage. The life in the deep sea is as diverse and abundant as what we see in shallow tropical systems. The diversity of life is enormous. In a place I can embrace with my arms around where the manganese nodules exist or in the crusts on seamounts, we find more than a dozen different categories of animal life about the same number of categories that you see on all of the terrestrial parts of the planet put together. They're there in the deep sea. What will mining do? Totally upend those systems. How long to repair them? Consider never. Hundreds of millions of years to make them and once destroyed and disturbed, this carbon sequestration is then, you know, opened and released back into the ocean. So why would we do it? We, the goal is because there are minerals there, but there are minerals already extracted, waiting to be recovered from all of the piles and heaps of our disposed areas. That's good mining. It's already concentrated more than what you'll find in the deep sea. And it's repairing the damage to mine where the dump sites that we already have exploited. And here's the thing. Right now, we look at nickel, cobalt, and, and lithium, and other materials that occur on mines, places on the land, and do occur in the deep sea around manganese nodules and crusts that occur on seamounts and around hydrothermal vents. 10 years from now, will we still need those metals? There's great effort right now to look for alternatives for batteries, other materials that don't require destroying the ocean or even destroying places on the land that are mined. We have something called a mind. Looking at how do you solve the problem of energy storage using metals, materials that don't require these, these metals that are difficult to obtain. There's a, a film some people know called Avatar, where mining interests go after a mineral known as unobtainium, unobtainium. <laughs> to get to it, you have to destroy the tree of life. Mm. To get to these deep sea minerals means destroying the tree of life. So why would we even think of doing it? So that's the 
That's the scientist in me speaking, the business person in me saying, you know, it's really expensive to do this. I don't see the cost benefit. There's an illusion that there are free goods out there just waiting to be captured. But the reality is the cost of actually doing this has not yet been resolved. It looks tempting, seductive, free goods just waiting to be taken. But the reality is very different. And as one who has spent a lifetime looking at technology, looking at how do you get into the deep sea, I think this is really an illusion that this is something that could be done even if you don't put on the balance sheet the cost to the earth, the cost to the future of humankind. The actual cost is just not yet practical. Thank you so much, Silvio. That was really well put and I'm sure very inspirational and educational for anybody who's going to be, you know, watching this interview and I really appreciate those insights. Thank you so much for being our guest here. That was a most interesting discussion. And thank you listeners for listening to the EV podcast. For more coverage on these issues and more, check out our website, www.ecobusiness.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify. I'm Jessica Chiam. Till next time.